Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specified, the Building Materials, Coatings, and Construction Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs, the difference makers, and the game changers in the building materials, coating, and construction industry. Today's guest is Peter Rosen, CEO and Chief Innovator at Castagra. I've worked with Peter on various projects and businesses for nearly 20 years. He's invented and commercialized numerous innovations that have improved the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hi, Todd. Good to be here. (laughs) Good, good. Can you tell the audience what sort of innovations you've developed? Okay, well, let's start with, I'll define it as the formal ones. In other words, things for which I took out a patent application and and sort of went down that path. Even though the innovative process really starts a little earlier than that. But anyways, uh, where I first filed a patent application was right during my college university internship while I was in the engineering school, is I developed a method for measuring the amount of coating, zinc coating in particular, on galvanized steel products. These are you know, steel wires and nails and, and, and things like you know, chain link fencing and, more importantly, electrical cables that you find along streets and across the country. Those are typically zinc-coated steel for the strength in the middle with aluminum wrapped around it. They call it the aluminum conductor steel reinforced cable. And it's very important to know how much zinc you have on that steel. And what happened typically is they had a, a lab measurement where they cut a piece of sample and then they, they would take it to the lab and cook off the zinc using a, a solution of hydrochloric acid and weigh it. And the difference in weight gave you the result. The problem was, one, that was a very slow test. And two, when you cut a piece of sample out of something that, you know, like you make a long, long cable, you don't want to have a bunch of welds and joints in it. So for some of those high-tension cables, they can only get a measurement at the end. And that end might be a mile of cable between welds. So I came up with a way of doing that electronically from my physics and engineering background. So that was that was my first. That happened, oh, gee, um, kind of in the middle of my college years, and then I got the patent file shortly after college. Then I, another one that's kind of a big deal, I, I think it, I didn't seem like as big a deal at the time, but I knew it was important, <laughs> was in the early 90s, back in the day of the early PCs, there were very limited hardware capabilities, like 256 kilobytes of RAM was a big deal when it came out. At that, that early stage, there was a need to be able to play video on these early computers. And at the time, you could only do that with special hardware packages that you're having to hook up to your machines or install different circuits within the machines, different different things like that. And I thought there's, there's a group that I put together in North Vancouver, Canada, to come up with a way of playing full motion video on a computer without putting in a bunch of special hardware. Well, that software and that compression system and everything else eventually became what is, what is known, even to this day, 
as a Microsoft media player. So that that was a bigger deal than I thought it would become. I had no idea where it was going to go, but that's the second one. Yeah, and you dealt with Bill Gates on that, right? Yeah, it was kind of a weird thing because I actually had lunch. We went to Convicts in Vegas, and my group, the main guy in my group, he had a whole bunch of Apple stuff. Like He was part of that whole next generation of the Steve Jobs crowd. So I had lunch in a hospitality suite with Steve Jobs. We kind of had to keep it hush-hush. So we had this dinner thing we were doing with Bill Gates later to push this, this video. And Steve Jobs, we're talking a little bit about this, this video system and whatnot, but he had kind of his own way of doing it. He wanted to, it wasn't pure enough for his way of looking at it. So then we had dinner that later with, with Bill, and, and that resulted in, in a deal. And this was back when Bill Gates was merely a billionaire. He wasn't you know, a, a trillionaire or whatever he is now. <laughs> <laughs> so and we didn't make a lot on it, but he made an offer. I knew well enough at the time to know that when Bill Gates makes you an offer, and it wasn't a very big offer, take it, move on. Because once you show him that something could be done, He's just going to do it no matter what. So we did that and moved on to the next things. And and there's been a long, I guess it's a long list right now. That's the, you and I are working pretty closely in on plasticized gypsum composition that was patented in the early 1990s. And we've got applications all over the world for this and even won this big competition in Canada. It was a $100,000 cash prize in front of millions of viewers for the top reinvention in the country which is this idea of a sustainable, renewable plastic products or displace a lot of these other horrible, evil plastics that are out there. Yeah, and epoxies and stuff like that. Yeah, this question I don't think I've ever asked you, but were you always inventing stuff as a child? I mean, I, I know your your father was very sort of skilled with his hands and doing stuff. Were you always sort of inventing stuff? Yeah. Yeah, prior to doing patents and all this stuff, which is more of a for, what I described as the formal inventing methodology, is as a kid, yeah, I was doing funny things. And, and my dad was very much a support of that. Not just him, but you know, I was born in Switzerland where there was a real culture of, of, of technical precision and purity and so on. Like, like the Swiss are known for watches and chocolate too, but mainly the, the technical little things like the, the watches and so on and, that, that are made there. But I can remember as just the early, in my early teens is my neighbors are pretty far away. And this is in Canada now, not Switzerland. We'd, we moved when I was a, a kid. And we came up with our own little phone system because the parents wouldn't let us use the phone in the house because <laughs> at that time, it was a rural area where we had one phone line shared by like 10 families, 10 households on in that part of, of the rural area, so that part of the mountain. So what we did is we just strung up our own phone lines and kind of figured out how to make like our own internal phone system. And it was that was it was something that we did as kids, thinking that it was fun, and it was fun. So <laughs> that's the stuff we were doing. That's awesome. I didn't know. Now, one of the things that one of our sort of listeners was very curious about because you've invented so many things. It's not a coincidence that you know how to do this stuff because you repeated it over and over and over. What's your problem solving process look like? I mean, I've seen you do it, but can you explain it? Yeah, there's a few prerequisites to having a good process. One is to be thinking of having processes, but the other is 
is you kind of have to be widely read. Now, what I mean by that is, is be interested in a lot of different things, a lot of areas that could seem very divergent. Like, for instance, when I went to engineering school, it was natural for me that, hey, my major is in mechanical engineering. I got into all these materials and all these other things, which is not quite mechanical engineering. But I had a minor in philosophy. And I go, oh, why that? Well, critical thinking, and it was interested. And then in high school, I was into theater and other things too, sports in earlier years. But I had a wide range of friends with different interests, different points of view, and so on. I think you have to kind of have that fertile soil to be able to evolve the creative process in, in technology areas. So if you take the Ecuador, the plasticized gypsum composition, that's the title of the patent, back in 1993 when we filed it in the U.S. The way that that came about was a friend of mine was from Austria originally. He was a master Finnish carpenter. Now, he was 20 years older than I was. And, and he said, oh, you know, Peter, you're, you're doing all this university stuff. Can you come up with a way that something out of plastic, instead of me having to cut all these little pieces of wood or do all these laminations that are so time-consuming, just something that looks great, that can go around curved walls and up these spiral staircases and everything that building all the time that take forever. So I thought, well, okay. And I, I was kind of rebuffing him because I really wasn't that keen on that area. But again, his background is very different than mine. It comes from a different part of the world. And he was good at this thing. So it took about six months and there's some reasons for it. But when I finally, he kept badgering me and I said, okay, well, you know what? I'll do it. Okay, but you're going to sell it. I'm not going to get into trying to sell moldings to go around curved walls and things. But if you can sell it, find a distributor or do all that stuff, I'll see what I can do to come up with a product. But I'm going to need time. He says, well, how long do you need? I don't know. Might be six months. That'd be my guess. Might be a year. Might be two weeks. It just depends on what I can find that's out there and how quickly the experimental results come in. So then the First thing I did is I did not have a big background in polymer chemistry. I'm pretty good at figuring things out. So I started doing a lot of research. Spent days, and then days became weeks. And then I was spending quite a few half days or evening, you know, three or four hour blocks. A good university library, this is actually the University of British Columbia, Canada in this case, you're really digging through and learning and understanding this stuff. And I found it really fascinating. And and I was going through literature from the 1800s, back when they were using natural ingredients because I wanted to solve this problem in a more sustainable way. I was always interested in that that kind of approach to it. And then studied a lot of German. Now, because I'm from Switzerland, I kind of muddle my way through the, the German literature, which is pretty tough going. And then what I call the American developments are very important. Uh, not just American, but really from the petrochemical polymer kind of world, a lot of that kind of, you know, a lot of American literature on that. So researched all that, organized a series of experiments. And, what I, and this is part of the process. On the experiment, it wasn't just, okay, I'm going to make some funny stuff that's going to do certain things. It's going to be, I took what Frank was looking for. I, I sat down with Frank a bunch of times while doing the research. And I said, okay, Frank, what's it got to do? Like, how much of a, how tight do we got to be able to bend this thing? Does it have to be, what, what are the properties? And he'd say things like, well, 
I might want to glue these on, but I might also want to use air nails or hand nails. So I want to make sure the glue sticks, and I want to make sure that the nails don't make the stuff split. And these are the sort of parameters that I was able to create kind of a matrix and a list of different properties that I had to meet. Then that helped focus the research, and then I was able to say, okay, I'm ready to, to really start doing a more involved set of experiments. So then what I would do is, and I, it took thousands of trials on different things to, to basically come up with a suitable polymer, a polymer system that met my overall requirements of sustainability and, and such, met all the particular technical points that, that Frank was after for being able to make these things work out in the field and install them. And then always, always being mindful of the costs of everything because if it's going to be too expensive, nobody's going to want it, nobody's going to buy it. So that's always an important, very important motivator in innovation. So it took six months of initial research, another year of those experiments, thousands and thousands of them, I would say 10,000 plus, and then, and then another year or so of, of figuring out how to get a production line going and then bringing in investment capital and and such and and then scaling it up. And then I guess we started the real business, making and selling products. So going back to Peter, uh, just to clarify, because I know people that haven't done these sort of things may wonder, when you say thousands of thousands and up up to 10,000 when you were done, how do you manage that process? I mean, how do you stay organized? Okay, well, I'll give you a very specific example of something. Within that, developing the architectural moldings that required a large number of experiments, but they could be really easily organized, is what was required was for these things to be able to, to have a wood grain and to be able to, be able to paint them and stain them and have them look like real wood. So, but the, one of the specific requirements for that was I had to come up with a mold and a way to make molds or tooling that would have a wood grain in it that then I could transfer. That at the time we were, we were just pouring it out of buckets into these little samples. I'd mix up like a, a 600 gram sample, do a little short you know, piece of something with the wood grain on it. Between the, the, the finished cured product and the mold, is I needed to have the right mold release agent. And and it was hard to come up with the right one because you don't want anything that leaves a residue on the product that, that would interfere with somebody coming along to paint it later. You don't want one that builds up in the mold. So what I was able to do is just say, okay, here's a list from the research of all the different types of mold releases that are out there. Here's where I had to figure out where do I get all this stuff? Where am I going to do the work? Because you can't just start mixing chemicals and doing this in your kitchen necessarily. That's not not a good approach in a lot of places. And then, but anyways, I was able to organize the materials, get the different releases, and then start mixing and matching. And ultimately, I would do a series of tests to see, okay, well, is it looking at two or three different properties, like how well does it release? Does it leave a residue? And does does it plug up the molds too quickly? So to clarify, are you are you're aggregating information? You don't obviously you don't know what's gonna happen. 
you're going out there collecting everything that you possibly can and then just banging through right. test after test after test, right? Yeah, wide and deep. So I do create a theoretical framework. Like, here's a theory. Here's what I think is going to happen. But I don't prejudge. I don't jump to conclusions mm-hmm. ahead of time because I don't necessarily know. And sometimes even when I do know, because I've done something before, yeah. I'll check it again because I might have been wrong. And I don't want to be misled by my own preconceived notions. I, I'm always challenging assumptions because assumptions, they can be an asset, but they're more often a problem. And you know what? I think that's what some people sort of make the mistake with invention, that they had some immediate insight that led to something and they forget that sometimes there's a lot of trial and sort of see what happens, kind of grinded through process that is involved in a lot of these innovative approaches. So I think that's overlooked. Yeah, I was a big fan of going on 100 plus years ago with Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. And those guys had very different approaches and different innovators at the time. But Thomas Edison, if I had a process that was similar to somebody else's, it was really his. More than anybody else that's out there that's, that's well known. As he did a lot of research, had massive libraries of everything, read everything he could find, brought in really smart, talented, great people, Nikola Tesla being one of them. And then Edison's process or process was was a very empirical one. Yeah. He just made sure that it hadn't been tried. There was a possibility that it might work. Even if there was no possibility that it would work, he wanted to see what it would do anyway. Yeah. And just test it, check it, measure it, log it, keep refining what you're doing. Yeah. Tesla had a different approach. Tesla was a, a far and away a very, very brilliant guy. It's, but his brilliance was kind of concentrated in different ways. You know, he was yeah. a, all these guys are geniuses, but in different aspects, working together, they were great. Yeah. But Tesla was, he was doing a lot of experiments too, but he had more, he had fewer but bigger experiments. And Edison had big experiments and small experiments and all shapes and sizes, but he had a lot more of them than Tesla ever did and a lot more success. Yeah, I think the key thing I think we, we found over the years is Edison was a big collaborator. Yeah. And Tesla, in part, he believed that innovation happened alone by himself. And that's his methodology. He's famously quoted for saying that. So I would say that, you, you're, Peter, you're more of a collaborator. You sort of, and you aggregate uh, tons of information, a bit more like Edison and, uh, than uh, Tesla's approach. So Yeah, I, I think you have to kind of a little of both. But you know, whether you have yeah. more one or more the other, I would say, yeah, Building on, you know, standing on the shoulders of people that have done great work is important. And I think, yeah, to your point, I think you're, you're, you're quite right. So the collaborative is more my approach. So you've had, you've been doing this for a while, but I mean, at some point there was some sort of turning point in your life and how you've been doing this uh, when it kind of all came together. Can you kind of run us through when that was for you? Uh, Transformation. Well, it was step by step. But it's interesting, transformatively, I would say it's a lot more recent than that. I'm, what, 53 or 54 now, mm-hmm. where things really took a different kind of turn was actually when I got married. And I was 51 when I got married, just three, four years ago. And, and what happened there was, I think, to be really good and successful in innovation, you really have to commit to, at the time, the resources, everything else. And 
and I was very long in putting off uh, getting married. And I've been in a lot of different relationships over the years. But now what's happened was I have enough things in place over the years. You and I have worked together on some of them over, over the last 20 years. But there's kind of a, I was able to build a platform. I've got enough things going in the right direction. So, you know, financially things are fine and I've got a good experience, balance of time and effort. I'm more efficient now than I was when I was in my 20s. I don't have to be up all night 24-7 for a week when I'm working on something. I, I don't do that anymore. I, mean, I shouldn't say that ever. I, I do want to <laughs> get into something. But that never really goes away. But now having having married, I can say my best friend, with, with Janice kind of involved in the process, I've been able to kind of recalibrate in a way, and, and I would say my productivity, even though maybe I'm not as sharp and keen as I was in, in my 20s, you know, we get a little slower as we get older, but we have a lot more experience that we can count on is, is I have a more balanced approach, and I don't get as stressed out in the same ways anymore. I just, so things are not pretty even now. I can take things in stride that were a big struggle early on. So yeah, I would have to say that Getting married—that was that was a big transformative point for me. Yeah. Late in the game, mind you, but hey, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to be a little bit different to make it in the innovation space, and that's one of my differences right there. Absolutely. So your your day to day is transformed. So let's look at your your top habits, your top routines for success. I mean, obviously, what you do every day contributes to being successful and being balanced and what are your sort of top habits or routines? Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll just take a normal, typical day. I get up pretty early and I'm usually doing something fairly physical early in the morning. So right now I've got some yard projects and I've also got some R and D projects within a couple of different companies. So I'll get up there and, you know, if there's a physical aspect, like I'll get out there and do that for an hour or two, you know, right around first light and then, just grab a banana, go out there, do something for a while, work up a bit of a sweat, and then come in, and and then we'll maybe grab a quick shower, and then grab a normal breakfast. Then with Janice, usually in the morning, and then and then kind of my day starts. The business hours of the day start. So having exercising, eating well, I think those are critically important. Another one is is it's funny because I take information in a different way now than I did 20, 30 years ago. So 20, 30 years ago, I would I would always have stacks of books, magazines, papers. I was always reading a bunch of stuff that was physical because we didn't have the World Wide Web in the way that we have it now. So I still read very far and very wide, but a lot of it, I would say about three quarters of it now is I'm doing in front of my computer wherever I am, whether I'm traveling or here, you know, in the office or at home or whatever, I'm getting a lot of that information available from online sources that just didn't exist back then. A really simple, clear example for anybody working on inventing stuff is if you come up with an idea, there's a pretty good chance that somebody's already done it before on that there's a huge amount of stuff available in published patents and patent applications and so on. Well, back in the in the earlier years, I had to go to a place that had all this stuff. 
So I would have to go to Alexandria, Virginia, to the U.S. Patent Office, or some of the big university libraries have good resources to publish patents, but not usually the application. So, so I have to travel to a place that had the materials if I had to go and read my work there. And that's not convenient. Now, if I'm looking at a patent, I'm researching a patent, I just go on to the, uh, the, the various patent office databases, the different online sources, whatever, and I have the millions and millions of published patents and applications and all that stuff worldwide available wherever I am. And that's a huge, I think that that's a, a transformative thing in technology in general is anybody everywhere in the world that has an internet connection and a, a middle to okay computer can access this great treasure trove of, of all the technology that's ever been worth publishing and writing about in the world. It's sitting there. Just go and get it, look it up, learn how to do a good search. So reading far and wide, using the new tools to do that as, as they come about, being organized about it. I don't necessarily have like, like from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, I'm researching something. No, I don't do it that way. But what I do do is I do create time periods. Like if I know that I'm going to be working on something that involves a lot of writing or reading, is I kind of block out, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to need three or four hours to work on this without a bunch of phone calls, other things going on, and I build that into my schedule. And if I've got a bunch of urgent stuff that comes up during that period, that's a problem. So, you know, you have to be able to shut the phone off, you know, close the doors, do whatever. To, to be able to do that concentrated work. Same thing with the collaborative aspect is take the time to, to get with the team members and kind of share the results and so on. More often than not, again, this is another transformation from 20, 30 years prior, is we can meet with all these great, talented people without being in the same room now. Now, we, we even had phones and, and things like that, sure, back 20, 30 years ago. But now we're able to you know, use different online forums, you know, go to meeting and such, uh, Skype or whatever, where we're, we're meeting, looking at documents, moving stuff back and forth, making edits from different people inputting from different parts of the world all at the same time. So we're doing, we're doing that. So that's another routine or, or habit of taking time to you know, organizing these sessions. Within the company work, like over at Castagra, as you know, we have every every Monday, we have a set time for key operations team. We have the, a lot of companies, I'm not inventing anything here, but we have a regular ops meeting where we set the priorities for a week and kind of review things a little bit behind us and set our sights on the upcoming week and so on. And we have larger, longer strategic planning sessions as well. So, yeah. Yeah, the top three, read far and wide using whatever tools, take the time to do what needs doing, really, and I think maybe tying it all together is we've got limited resources of time, money, and, and effort, energy, uh, manage them, allocate them, whatever, plan yeah. them. Do you know plan. one thing that you do that I find extremely unique, I don't use, haven't seen anyone else really do it, and you're religious at it, is you document everything everything that you do i don't know when it started it started long time ago and every insight you have or call that you have 
I don't know, you've been logging, logging, logging. And you wherever you store that, I think you scan it now, is a huge chunk of information. Yeah. Yeah, that actually started on January the 12th, 1987. That's specific. It is specific for a reason. And you probably know what you ate that day too, right? Yeah, actually, I probably know what I ate, you know, any time between then and now. Well, not necessarily. I don't, I don't write down everything that I eat. But, but what, yes, I, yes, what, I, what I have always done is I've maintained uh, a lot of writing. There's, I, don't, I don't think there's been a day other than, well, I might be out somewhere and not writing on that day, but there's not a day in the last several years doesn't have something in my writing attached to it. I keep track of who, you know, phone calls and things like that. Ideas get logged down. Now it's it's all paperless. Now it wasn't. <laughs> and, and I don't know too many people that do as much volume as I do, but I had at one time, I think it was around 2005, about 400 bankers' boxes, you know, those boxes that you, people used to stuff full of files, like we still do that, full of stuff in offsite storage. And I had all that rendered into an electronic format, which I carry around with me. You know, and I have a friend who used to make a joke. He says, Peter, you know, someday you're going to be able to have all your, your life's writings and all your stuff able to fit in the device with the size of my finger. And I go, you know, this <laughs> interesting because that's what you're right. All the stuff would fit on a thumb drive. <laughs> That's appropriately made. But the, the, the discipline is great. And what happens is, if I write something down, I consciously don't have to remember it because I know I've written it down. And there's a, yeah. there's a real freedom that comes with that to be more creative in other areas. So, yeah. But what, what actually happens is the reverse. Is I've always had a really great memory photographic in that sense that I could I could read huge amounts of stuff and, and retain the relevant pieces. But so I read all those things down that I distilled from that, you know, the distillation of thought is really what one definition of writing is. By distilling it down to, you know, a few words or a couple sentences or whatever it is. And then not having to remember it, in fact what actually happens is the recollection is much better. I mean, if you're, if you're on a phone with somebody and you write their name down, you put the phone number beside it and you throw it in your notebook and eventually you can scan and it's in a file. Well, if I need to call that person, chances are I kind of remember the name of the person. I might even remember the phone number weeks or months or years later because of, you know, not having to remember it, but just remembering it. It's become more spontaneous. So this it's, it seems counterintuitive, but a very rigid process of writing down a bunch of stuff actually gives birth to spontaneity. Seems kind of awesome. Yeah. I think that's really strong because I mean, you write and write, write, and you read a bunch of stuff. And something unique going back to your process is, and then you think about it. You know, maybe you're you're doing a light nap or something like that, and suddenly you're you're at a point where you synthesize it in your head. And I've seen you spent hours and hours just non-stop typing you know if you're finishing a patent or something and just going that's probably part of it i guess uh, you, you used to do that a lot it's funny you know, that, that, that actually kind of inspires a little recollection is when i'm writing a patent application and it's is i don't just kind of spread it out as much sometimes i do certain applications i do but a lot of times what i try to do is quarantine the, the inventors and most patents that I work on now are not just me by myself, even though the last one I did was, but 
So usually there's two or three inventors and something. And, and then I will uh, try to organize it so we can be off-site for a week. And it's all it needs to be is one week with the right people, but, but with great computers, great printers, accesses to all the databases and everything else. And but minimize any kind of phone interruptions or whatever, make it a nice, fun place to be, a resort or something like that. And then just focus in on it, doing all the searches and the writing and the drafting, and then bringing the patent lawyer or agent in on, on the process. And then what happens is the whole thing is done in a week. Then the inventors all go away. The stuff gets filed by the attorneys. And we can, from an idea to a patent, we can have it turned around and filed typically in a two-week period, a week of our collaborative effort and then a, and then a week of a little back and forth with the drafts coming out of the attorneys preparing it for filing. And the quality of that product tends to be pretty darn good. And, and the efficiency of doing it that way is also very good because most inventors, people that got a lot of patents behind them, they don't get it done that quickly. It's usually kind of over a six-month period. You're doing a little bit of research. You're getting stuff. You're gathering your ideas. And you're back and forth trying to create a patent file. And a lot of times, you're not even writing it yourself. You're just feeding stuff to a patent attorney or writer and then just kind of reviewing it and whatnot. But when you add up all those pieces of time, they generally rarely ever be less than, than what you would do just by punkering down for a week and getting it all done in one shot. That's been my sort of experience on that. Wonderful. And I mean, and they go somewhere too. They commercialize because there's a lot of people that file patents, but they don't make it, make it out to the world. Yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> we, we know a lot about that topic. What are the most common mistakes these innovators make, Peter? Most common mistakes? Well, we, we wrote a book on it. You're, you're <laughs> chuckling over that. Is uh, they fall in love with their idea or their product, and if, if that happens, you're, you're you're very likely to fail. And then, but, but what, I, what I mean by that is, and, and you can articulate just just as well as I can, because we co-authored the, the book on inventoritis overcoming inventoritis, the um, the silent killer of innovation, as we subtitled it is that people fall in love with their idea, their product, and they get all hung up on it. So then it's like that love becomes blind and silly things happen. And, and generally, it's not, not very good in a business context. People get all hung up on control and power issues and, and just all kinds of bad things come from being too emotionally involved with your idea, intention, product, whatever it is. Now, that's not the same as being passionate. You want to be passionate and interested and keen, but you got to be able to step back and say, okay, all right, we got this thing. Now, what do we really got? You know, what else is out there? And where does it fit? And let's get some other input. And uh, it's not nice, you know, when somebody comes along and says, you know what, this looks a lot like this over here. And I see some guys doing the same thing in France that, that you're making a big deal out of, and they're doing it for a lot less. They got a good answer. What, what are you doing wasting your time on this? And that can hurt. And, and it should. But get over it. Go on to the next thing. <laughs> Do it. Yep. You're going to get past that. Absolutely. It's a big thing. And I remember because Steve Wozniak was a supporter of our book. And even Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, I mean, arguably the Steve Jobs being arguably the best at it 
he had to constantly sort of step back and make sure that he wasn't getting stuck on that. So I think for anyone in the innovation game at any level, it's important to take a look at that. Now, one of the cool things I've always remembered, but I've had to think back almost 20 years, is I'm not sure if you, you still carry it around, but you used to have a little card in your wallet and you know, it had sort of your sort of mission statement. And one of the, the points, I think there was four or five points, and one of the points with your mission statement about developing products and doing stuff was making the world a better place. And you've been really big about sustainability, even though it wasn't mainstream, people weren't talking about it in the media, but it, it was kind of a core belief that you, you held. And I want to ask you, you know, how did that develop and why was it so important to you at that time when no one was talking about it? Oh, that goes back a long way. So, yeah, I still have that, by the way, that uh, <laughs> initial life statement. And that came out of a lot of work of Stephen Covey with the seven habits of highly effective people. And I was reading a lot of that kind of stuff at the time. And I still do pick up on uh, things like that, you know, Tony Robbins and such. Those things absolutely do work. Absolutely, yes, make a difference and are worth doing. Anybody that's serious about really changing the world to make it a better place, and that is written right on that mission light statement. Everything I do has that as a requirement, not a preference, not a fuzzy thing. It's a required to change the world to make it a better place. If it's not going to do that, if in some reasonable, arguable way, I'm not interested. Count me out. So that's that's a that's a big deal. And and start early. And if you do this life really thinking stuff out hard, the sooner the better. So my luck was I kind of started this stuff. I had some friends that kind of put me on to some of the the early things, you know, the Napoleon Hill Think and Grow Rich and Lemon Stone and all these great guys that did Jim Rowan and, and, and all these early motivational speakers and writers and so on and, and what was current at the time, Tom Peters, Pursuit and Passion for Excellence and Kobe and and Tony Robbins, I went to some of Tony Robbins' things uh, you know, back in the day, and, and he's still very doing great things ever since. But what really kind of came out of that was, yeah, you do have to write, think. And really, I, I said it earlier, it's the writing, it's not getting the words on the paper, it's the, the, the distillation of thought. Like really sitting down, closing outside influence and, and really thinking through stuff and then distilling that into something that's worth putting down on paper. And then now uh, Mission and Life Statement, that's a further distillation. I did a lot of this hard thought in my early 20s, late teens even. When I was in college, I was really kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, this is great. Okay, I met these great people and one of the things that came out of my reading and some of these thought-leading type people I was visiting with was that, you know what, there's a problem here. The things that are, the directions that we're taking with our environment, our resources, our attitudes, our politics, a lot of things, if I had a measure at the time, I think that whether something is good or bad, it's a value judgment. And I have no problem making value judgments. And one of the things that I do value is I think in my opinion, generally, it's a good thing if you overall increase the amount of living biomass on the planet. I think that's that life is good. Mm -hmm. More richer vegetation, forests, whatever. I think that when we denude the planet, like you go to some of these, these mining towns where they've been 
smelting and basically rendering everything that's alive, you know, killing it. And then what you have left is dead. I judge that as being a negative. You know, we want to, sure, we might be taking minerals apart and then producing metal to make other great things, so that's fine. But what we've done by destroying that environment and turning it into into something from a, that was alive into something dead, I think that's that's a bad thing. So, you know, for instance, at Castagra, you know, we're growing our raw materials, our, our, our castor oil or towel oils or whatever we're using. We're kind of promoting life and greater living biomass. So, so I try to build that into whatever it is that, that we're doing. Oh, that's very good. Definitely. And it's something that sort of stuck with me. And I, I think, yeah, absolutely. And sustainable products went through a period where there was a lot of stuff out there that was more expensive, maybe it's not as commercially feasible. And they were trying to get people to or companies to use it to be greener just for the sake of the, the marketing purpose. But oh, yeah. I think there's been a lot of development in that area. And I think companies now can more easily do the right thing with using better products that are better for the the world. And there seems to be a lot more alignment there. So I'm definitely uh, happy of that direction and happy of the stuff yeah. that contribute. Yeah. The real, the real politic, the real world sort of puts out there that better, faster, cheaper, yeah. Trump sustainable. Yeah. But the value of sustainability is being increased. Maybe that sort of mantra of, better, faster, cheaper, overtaking sustainability, maybe that's, it's less and less. And yeah. certainly well, definitely in some parts, it's, it's kind of getting in there. So it's, it's fantastic. Now, I can't help it. I got to go. I got to circle back to one thing you said, which is you said one of your routines of success was yard projects. And I have to sort of sort of dig into that because your yard projects are like unlike any other yard projects that I am aware of. <laughs> so I, I want you to go into it. When you lived on the island, Vancouver Island, you had a yard project and it it kind of became very, very world famous. Can you describe one of your yard projects? Well, okay. It's funny. It's just now down in Arizona, but up in, on Vancouver Island, Back in the uh, mid-1800s, actually in 1860, that area was a coal-producing region. This is an area of Wellington, British Columbia, just over in the middle of Vancouver Island, way off the West Coast. And there was a mining concern developed by a Scott. We used to work for the old Hudson's Bay Company, one of these British companies doing everything around the world type companies. Actually, that company's still around as a retailer. But he developed a railway to move coal the mines down to Tidewater, where it was loaded onto tall ships and barges and whatnot, and taken down to San Francisco. And that was the coal that was used to power and heat San Francisco in the mid to late 1800s. Well, the guy, his name was Robert Dunsmere, and he was a Scot. Now, I don't want to, this might not come off the right way. It's not politically correct, but he was cheap. And what he did was he didn't buy a bunch of new stuff to build his thing. So he started in 1860, but what he did was he went to, he bought the remnants of the Surrey Iron Quarry in Surrey, England, which operated from 1806 to about 1845 or something like that. 
and it, a lot of the stuff was over there, and he bought it for very low cost. Cost him more to move it than to buy it. He got it all on the ships and took it around the Horn and brought it over from England all the way over to Vancouver Island and set the stuff up. Now, and the hobby I had was I built this, I restored this original 1800 railway. So, and it's not a big, long thing. It's not a, you know, the original railway is about five miles long, and I was able to, to put a quarter mile of it together on family property. But what got really interesting was we were starting to find dates on some of the pieces. And I've got pieces of rail that are dated 1811. Now, that's over 200 years ago. These are the oldest operating rails anywhere in the world. So, and now some British historians, and I have people come over from South Africa and England <laughs> go, oh, that can't be so. That can't be because those rails that you got there, they're wrought iron. And we were still doing the, the cast iron plate railway pieces and so on. And then wrought iron rail wasn't invented until the 1820s. You can't have the stuff that's 1811 on it. And I go, well, maybe so. But where was it invented? Well, it was invented in that Surrey area. And I go, well, Surrey Iron Works, they probably, now we don't know for sure, other than I got these old relics that I got trains running over, is they probably invented it. you got to think a couple hundred years ago, people weren't writing patents. They were keeping trade secrets. They probably worked it all out, got it going, so they had a competitive advantage, kept hush-hush about it, did whatever they did. And uh, it didn't get all published and patented until 10 years later. So so we're actually, this little railway project um, kind of moved it down. It's here in Arizona. So we're kind of putting it together down here. So the oldest railway, oper- or the railway with the oldest operating stuff anywhere in the world is going to be right down here in the Old Green Pass, Arizona. We get it running here. In your backyard. Because, <laughs> because I'm not changing the names on it. It's Wellington. The Wellington Colliery Railroad was the name of Dunsmuir Railroad at the time. So, but it's it moved from, I guess, from Surrey, England, to Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, down to uh, Wolverine Pass, Arizona. Like, this is having another big move. <laughs> so, and it'll be a little bit, we're gonna, I got a good spread here. So, it'll, it'll be pretty impressive when, it, when it's running. So, oh yeah, and I'm sure you'll have visitors because I remember you you had tourists from all around the world at your other locations. So I'm sure you'll have the volunteer crew like last time. So, anyways, Peter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know if I get you started on this, you're just gonna go forever on it. So I'm I'm gonna cut you off because I know I know I've I've, I've taken a, a lot of your time today, and I know uh, we we covered a lot of good ground, but. I've I've always sort of uh, watched in uh, amazement as you as you do your thing, but I, well, and likewise, Taps. I mean, the stuff that you're doing in in the marketing world and helping you know companies with their innovations and everything else is, is I mean, I mean, if you've been working and mastering this type of innovation, marketing, product marketing, and coming out of a sports marketing background and all these things and yourself coming from a different part of the world, like the opposite side of the world, coming over from Japan. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it, right? Yeah. We're kind of, you know, the world, look at everyone who's out there, all different parts of it, start yeah. collaborating on these things. And yeah. here we are today having a great time. Yeah, it's fun. And it's, it's uh, fun working with a lot of great people. You collaborate with lots of 
different people on the innovation side and I get to collaborate a lot people on the so the marketing and front end of the marketing side as well. So it's been fun and it's going to continue to be fun. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peter. I'm sure people definitely got something out of it. Well, that's it for today. So I want to thank everyone. All right. We've changed the world to make it a better place here is my expectation. <laughs> and a requirement. <laughs> awesome. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specified. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along. And send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. I will see you at the next episode. Thank you again, and I'll talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.